Welcome to the 12th episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. As always, this podcast is based on the newsletter, What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan. And if you go to our Instagram, whlw Kurdistan, you can find links to the newsletter as well as our Patreon, if you'd like to support us on there. I am your host, I am Gilles Chouani, and today's episode is divided into two parts. Part one is news about Kurdistan. We have news from all four parts of the country this week. And part two is an interview with Mivan Babakir, who is the head of automated fact-checking at Full Fact. So we started this week with Rojava, and this week in Rojava, they're bracing themselves for an influx of refugees. As you guys all know, the war in Syria is still ongoing, and right now the Syrian government is starting to concentrate on one of the last strongholds of the FSA in the country. If you don't know what the FSA is at this point... um, (laughs) I'm just going to explain to you. So the FSA is the acronym for the Free Syrian Army. They started as a counter-Assad revolution during the Arab Spring, or after the Arab Spring. Uh, But really, right now, they're basically the proxy for Turkey within Syria. Anyways, so the Syrian government is kind of attempting to regain control of that area where the FSA has control. And there's a lot of people living there, right? So that's leading to another refugee influx within Syria, or rather it would be IDP influx because they're, you know, internally displaced. But either way, so all these refugees or IDPs are going to the Kurdish-held zones because really outside of Damascus and Aleppo in Syria, the only places who are stable, which are stable, are the Kurdish zones. So they're all going that way. And General Commander Muslim Kobani of the SDF He actually said that they're ready to pave way for even more refugees or IDPs, if you'd like to refer to it that way, refer to them that way. Now, this is obviously wonderful from the SDF to be opening their gates for their uh, fellow Syrians. Although there was a little bit of, how do I put this, not bitterness exactly, but it was more like, let's say jealousy, right? Because... There are Kurds who are living in government-controlled areas, so the Assad-controlled areas, who can't freely go between Rojava and the Assad regions, right? And they were saying, you know, we can't go through that easily through the border. How is this fair? Which, fair enough, you know, it's it's really not fair because the Kurds living in government-controlled areas want to go back to their homelands. They're just, it's just not that easy. But at the same time, the people of you know, the people who are running away from the war aren't really doing it voluntarily. They're, they have to. They're running away from war. But we'll see how this turns out. Um, at the time being, there seems to be a lot of people going towards Rojava. And if it, le- it leads to saving lives, then wonderful. In other news about Rojava this week, the U.S. is planning on opening a new military base in Hasaka. So... You know, back in October when the U.S. planned or announced their retreat from Syria, the main message was, we're coming out of Syria, or rather Trump's main message, we're coming out of Syria and we're going to bring the troops home, right? And then they realized, well, if they come out of Syria, they lose that part of the world to other influences. So Russia came in really quickly. They even came into American military bases, you know? And they gained a lot of control in that area. And of course, America didn't retreat completely. They stayed there. And now things are getting really complex as they're planning to open a new military base in the Kurdish-controlled city of Hasaka. Now, we don't know exactly what their plans are, but it seems that the U.S. may be sending even more troops to the region, which, <laughs> uh, like, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not an expert on these matters, but... Isn't it counterproductive to take troops out, you know, and that costs money, take troops out, announce to the world, we're bringing our boys home, we're bringing our troops home, and then a little while later, a couple months later, you take them back in, and you're building new military bases. And it's like, essentially right now, you've lost your influence in the region, you've lost your control in the region, the stability you had built with the people of the region is now gone, the trust is gone, what is the point of this, right? Other than Turkey getting what they wanted, America achieved nothing. And the only reason I say Turkey getting 
what they wanted is somewhat of an achievement for America is because America has been trying to fix that relationship with Turkey for such a long time, right? So America retreats, Turkey gets kind of what they want, Russia gets a lot of what they want, and the biggest losers here are the Kurds and the, the, the Americans. So what was the point of all that? Maybe they're just realizing that they kind of screwed the pooch on that one. They really messed up with their strategy, and now they're going back. But I don't know. And the worst thing is right now, or not maybe not the worst thing, but right now we're hearing more and more about American soldiers who are in Rojava in Syria and Russian soldiers who are also there being confrontational against each other, blocking the way, not letting the other pass through. So all I know is I'm just layman. I'm not an expert on strategy, but all I know is things are really getting complicated over there. And we can only hope for the best. I say that a lot on the podcast. We can only hope for the best, but we can really only hope for the best. All right, that was all the news for Rojava. Now we're going to move on to Bashur, South Kurdistan, Iraq. So this week in Bashur, something <laughs> something happened to, which to those of you who have kept up with Kurdish news is going to be very familiar, okay? Petty party feud creates gas problems in Kurdistan. So... PUK and KDP are feuding again over money. And this is so familiar to us. This is so familiar to us that it kind of feels like a rite of passage. Every young person in Kurdistan has to see the PUK and KDP feud over money or power, influence or whatever, at least once in their lives. And for those of us lucky enough, we see it on a weekly basis. So <laughs> this is great. But anyway, so this week, party feuds between the KDP and PUK has caused an unnecessary gas crisis within the region. We're not going to really go into the whole details of the of the feud, but the basic idea is KRG, i.e. KDP, KRG, Kurdistan Regional Government, KDP, Kurdistan Democratic Party, KRG has given a contract to a company, and that means that then they are in charge of the gas pipelines in Chamchamal, okay? But, and this is where the feud kind of starts, but the PUK is saying that this company isn't really a company. It's just a, like a, a front, right? It's just a front that the KDP is using and they're kind of taking the money of the gas from themselves. And to battle that, the PUK is now sort of blocking access to gas supplies in Chamchamal. And they released a statement saying that Foul play, there is foul play, and they threaten to continue with these actions unless KDP distributes expenditures equally for the whole region. But again, like I said, if you're if you've kept up with Kurdish news, you know this is like one of the most familiar things that happens within the region KDP PUK fighting each other. And you, you will also know that the result of this feud is always the same the people suffer, it's not the you know politicians from KDP or PUK, they don't suffer, they have a lot of money. They live in their villas. They're, they're fine. The people who suffer here is the common folk. Is the people who work paycheck to paycheck. Is the people who have to endure one of the coldest winters Kurdistan has had in many, many years. You know? Regardless, is the people that have had to suffer from this lack of gas, especially during one of the coldest winters in years. And this, you know... With everything the Kurds have been through this year and really for the past few years, this is just like the twisted icing on the cake. So we don't know where this is going to go, but we can only think of the people of Kurdistan who are trying to stay warm during these snowy months. All right, moving on from that. This week, Hulk News released an article saying that Kurdistan has rejected a prisoner exchange deal with ISIS in which ISIS would release two Kurdish shepherds in return for the wife of an emir, an ISIS emir who holds a U.S. citizenship. I don't really know how to feel about this one, right? Because on the one hand, these two shepherds have done nothing to deserve this kind of fate, right? On the other hand, you don't want to release someone who's potentially dangerous or even if she isn't dangerous, given to the demands of ISIS. You don't want to make deals with ISIS. It sets a bad precedent. This is really, I guess, it's one of those situations where really morality is in the gray area, right? I mean, 
these Kurdish shepherds, they were they deserve to be free. And if there's a chance to free them, we should free them. Right? Right. That, that I think I just convinced myself of, of the answer. Yeah, I think it it shouldn't be rejected because if it was the emir himself, it was this it was this guy who actually had a hand in the leadership of ISIS, then that would be okay. You know, to not do the exchange, but it's not. It's the wife of an emir. And I'm not saying that she can't be dangerous. I'm just saying that it's not the same, right? I don't know. I'm I'm going to move on from this, okay? Um yeah, uh, moving on from that. Turkey bombards five locations in Kurdistan in just two days. Uh, Turkish planes have bombarded five different locations in Kurdistan. So this is really interesting. I'm, I'm going to get to that in a second. But they bombarded five th different locations across the three provinces of the region in just two days. But according to the PKK, there were no casualties from the attacks. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you why this is interesting, right? Because... Earlier this week, an article came out saying that the U.S. have stopped aiding Turkey with finding locations of PKK militants, right? So for, I don't know, for the last how many years, I think since 2007, America has been aiding Turkey with their drones to find the locations of PKK hideouts, PKK militants and where they could be, right? And the article came out today that due to what America, or rather due to what Turkey was doing in Syria and how aggressively they went in there, America canceled that deal with them. So it could be that Turkey right now is just trying to flex their muscles to show, oh, we don't need America. We can do it on our own. But if, <laughs> if that's what they were trying to do, they did a terrible job <laughs> because nobody was killed. Nobody was harmed. <laughs> So yeah, if uh, Turkey is this impotent without America, that is really great. Because let's hope they 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 keep working this way. <laughs> Moving on from that um, to some good news. This week, a group of notable men got together and published an open letter on the newspaper Avena to the women of Kurdistan, and this kind of came as a reaction to the controversy by the mullahs, like Mullah Musher, what he said basically. He really degraded women and really objectified them in a large way. And these controversies about so-called religious scholars have been plaguing Kurdish society for such a long time. Essentially, the letter condemned the objectification, degradation, and belittling of women in Kurdish society by these so-called religious scholars. And I'm just going to read a quote from the article itself because I thought it was really beautifully put. I'm going to first read it in Kurdish and then I'm going to translate Ledidi emada bunu jiani hitkasek chipiao chijun na amrazo ne kerestea unashteki jerdeste huastu raeteki peshtedes nishan krewa. Essentially, what it's saying is, from our perspective, the way we see it, the life and existence of no persons, whether man or woman, is the object with which to fulfill the whims and wills of a preordained purpose. Basically, no man or woman should be treated as an object or as a tool to fulfill the purposes or the wills of an ideology of a, or a person, right? And it continues, What it's saying there is, all of us, whether man or woman, are independent persons, complete persons, and we have the right to all the civic rights of such persons. So regardless of gender and regardless of uh, of sexuality or whatever, regardless of all of that, we are, we are all persons within this society. We're all humans and we have the rights of humans and should be given the freedom to exercise them. And it continues to say, as I just uh, explained just now, as I translated just now, that men and women are equal in a healthy society and no ideology or persons should be able to take away that right, you know? And they also condemned the fact that some TV stations have actually given a platform for people like this, for people like Mela Mazhar, to be publicly degrading hundreds of thousands of women, millions of women, right? And this is really where the problem is. But at the same time, seeing an article like this, seeing men come forward in Kurdish society 
this is huge. This is really, really huge. And I really hope that it has the right kind of effect, you know? I really hope this actually inspires more men to come forward and be allies. And obviously here at the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast, we fully, fully support such a message. We are with the women of Kurdistan and we support their fight against these radical, you know, quasi-Islamist uh, mullahs. You know, people like Malama said, you know, their ideologies, I'm not... Uh, I might be exaggerating a little bit here, but their ideology is very akin. It's very close to what ISIS believes in. So seeing something like this as a reaction to that, to that controversy that came out a few weeks ago, is really positive. And really, this is one of my favorite parts of the article, right? I'm going to read out loud again and translate for you guys later. Khanamani Aziz. Emelem name the Hamdamanuid la regae, Bergri Kirden la insanibuni ewo, Bergri la insanibuni humanpkin. Hamdashmanuid Bergri lodi dubkin, Kemahmuman Mrovin, Ukasishman, Nuneri Hudanin. Translated that is, ladies, or rather, Hanmani as his dear ladies, in this letter, we want to, we want to protect your right of humanity and our own humanity. At the same time, we want to protect the perspective and the opinion that we are all humans and none of us are representatives of gods. Because that really was the essential thing here. These people who are, quote-unquote, representatives of God, you know, they're religious scholars or whatever, they're the ones saying this. And this is why this gained traction, because it's these people saying it. It's not just anyone, it's these people. And in this letter, they really they put it quite beautifully saying that none of us are representative of God. None of us know, you know? All we know is that you're human, I'm human, and we're all equal in this society. Honestly, I love this. I love this article so much. I love it so much. But I'm going to move on now to the second initiative that I think is really positive, and it's kind of related to this topic. But right before I get into the next topic, I just want to put out a trigger warning for people who might be triggered by this, because there is talk of rape. If you are triggered by that, please skip ahead two or three minutes, and you can continue listening to the podcast. So here we go. So, yeah, like I said, this topic is kind of related to what I mentioned just earlier. Deshne Murad has been helping with an exhibition that honors and remembers violence against women, and women who have died due to violence. This is a really uh, wonderful, wonderful exhibition she's putting together with the help of some other people. It's called the Her Story Exhibition. And in an interview with Rudau, she said, we don't talk about rape. We don't talk about honor killing. We don't talk about violence because it's taboo. And she continues, for decades, especially in an Islamic-dominated region, the honor of the women is the honor of the family, the brother and the father. And this is really the main issue here, right? Um... Because the woman is seen as the honor of the family, she gets the blame, she gets the punishment, she gets honor killing, essentially. And just to tell you how bad it is, um, there are some. We have some stats for you. Okay, so last year, 120 women lost their lives because of gender-based violence. 41 were killed, and 79 committed suicides. And these statistics come from the Directorate of Combating Violence Against Women. So what uh, Deshne Murad is putting together here is really positive. It's a it's a push in the right direction. You know, women have not been getting the right kind of attention, especially violence against women have not been getting the right kind of attention. And just kind of going back to what I said last week with that conversation with Sham Jeff, the producer on this podcast, she said, the bright side of people like Mela Musar having Mazhar having a platform is that the things they say could be an opening to a discussion. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with the article. And I'm sure this exhibition was put together before Mela Mazhar. But seeing it come at this time is quite convenient for the for the movement that is fighting back against these archaic beliefs, these very old and conservative beliefs about the roles of women and the status of women. So this, again, is so, so positive to see. And the third initiative that I'm going to talk about 
is a campaign to aid stray animals. Now, this is, again, something I have always been very passionate about, and it's really nice to see it also getting some attention. So Kurdish rights activists have begun a campaign that will take place in both Hawler, Erbil, and Slimani, with the goals of taking care of stray animals. People can either volunteer or donate to the campaign by visiting Bakhigishti and Slimani. So Bakhigishti in Kurdish just means public park, but it's uh, like the oldest public park in Slimani. If you are in the region and if you are able to give back and help in any way possible, you can go this week and donate or volunteer. That was all the news from Bashur, Iraq, South Kurdistan, Iraq. Next up is Rojalat. So moving on to Rojalat with some not-so-happy news about medical costs in Rojalat. They're becoming really high. So we all know that America has been adding a lot of pressure on Iran through different methods, but one of the ways they've been really pressuring Iran is through economic sanctions. And of course, those economic sanctions have affected the economy, and that in turn has affected the medical supplies in Iran. And that in turn has affected the prices of medical supplies in Rojalat and, of course, generally in the rest of Iran. Now, the locals are complaining that while the government cannot supply them uh, with the medicine that they need, it is still available for purchase, right? So just like in Bashur, just like in Bashur with the feud between the PUK and the PK and the KDP, sorry, it is the people who always suffer. It is the people who don't have something to fall back on who suffer. And that's exactly what's happening in Rojalat in Iran. It's the Kurdish people and other minorities and obviously, of course, Persians who are not economically well off who are suffering. Like, think how terrible that is, right? You're sick or someone you love is sick or your friend is sick or whoever is sick. And the cure, the solution to that sickness is in the pharmacy down the road. But you can't get that cure. You can't get that solution because you literally don't have the material to pay for it. Like most of us in the West never really have to think about that that much. I apologize. Of course, in America they do. But in Europe, most of us never have to think about it because we have universal health care and all that. But just imagine. You've got a sickness which really isn't even that terrible if it was in a developed country or in a country that wasn't under economic sanctions but there where you literally cannot afford the simplest of drugs to help your disease you just have to live with it or worse die of it and whenever i talk about roshalat i always say let's hope for the best but really what's hoping doing at this point things really need to change so anyways, we're moving on from Rojalat right now to Bakur, North Kurdistan, Turkey. As I said earlier, Kurdistan is right now facing one of the coldest winters that it has faced in recent memory. And we're seeing more and more effects of that, right? So in one this week, a snowstorm killed 33 people. 33 people killed in a snowstorm in, a, in this day and age. That's terrible, man. That's terrible. So... 33 people were killed and 53 were injured. And rescue teams are continuing their searches for any more possible survivors. And authorities are warning that some of the injured are in really unstable conditions. And that is kind of putting a risk on increasing the number of fatalities. I feel like in every region, and I'm sorry for being so uh, depressing this week, but in every region of Kurdistan, the Kurds are getting the least kind of uh, any kind of aid from the host countries right i shouldn't even call them host countries the central governments i should say so in turkey they don't really care if kurds die you know we've seen story after story about how turkey is targeting kurds actually you know you can see that in the kurdish regions of turkey in north kurdistan those parts those cities those roads those houses are the least developed in the country even though there's, it has a lot of natural resources, even though it has such a large potential for tourism because of all the ancient, of the ancient architecture, of the ancient buildings there, all the history that's there, right? 
it doesn't get the attention it needs because there are Kurds there. Same thing in Rojalat, same thing in Rojava, and those of us from Bashur are lucky because we've had a government that, for some reason or another, have actually protected the Kurdish borders and the Kurdish places in Iraq. Anyways, again, I'm very sorry for being so depressing this week. Um, hopefully next week is going to be better news. That was the end of the news part for the episode. Next up is an interview with Mivan Babakir, the head of automated fact-checking at Full Fact. With us on the podcast this week is Mivan Babakir. Mivan is the head of automated fact-checking at Full Fact. Mivan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, as I said earlier, you work with Full Fact, but even beyond that arduous task, you are very active. I remember you were traveling to the Middle East not too long ago and working with fact-checkers there, and we will get to all of that. But first, I would like to, I'd like to hear a little bit about your origins, if you'd like to share a little bit. Sure. Um, I was born in Baghdad, um, but to Kurdish parents. Um, yeah. And my family and I decided to leave Kurdistan um, and Iraq when I was around one and a half. Um, that was as a result of the first Gulf War um, and the 1991 uprisings. Um, we, along with a lot of other people, were part of the Koral. Um, and there are pictures of my family members and I hanging out in those mountains with tents uh, from a very long time ago. Um, and that kind of kick-started our journey of leaving, which took five years to eventually reach the United Kingdom, where I have lived ever since. Wow. Yeah, five years. It was a five-year journey. And you spent some time in the Netherlands as well, right? Yeah, that journey took us um, through Turkey to Azerbaijan, through to Russia, where we spent about um, a year or two of our lives, and then to the Netherlands, where I spent a year, and then eventually to um, the UK. The UK, wow. And is there some some memory or a few memories from that experience coming to the UK, even though you were very young? Is there anything that really stuck? Um, my memories of the UK specifically? Your memories of being, your experiences of being a diaspora Kurd. I see. Um, yeah, I think that in some ways, every memory is punctured by the fact that I was a diaspora Kurd. <laughs> you know, you you never, you're not allowed to forget that you're a diaspora Kurd, even if you're trying to forget. <laughs> um, and I think that, oh, to be honest with you, a lot of my earliest memories um, in the United Kingdom are ones of loneliness, um, which sounds really sad, but, um, but, no, but I think a lot of diaspora Kurds can actually, myself included, I can completely relate to that. Yeah. Because so when we came to the UK, it was just me and my mum. Um, I didn't see my dad for another four years until he joined us. So that was very hard. Um, and when I did eventually see him again, I couldn't even remember what he looked like. Um, so he was this stranger, um, who had entered my life and I was told that he was my father. So that was a difficult thing to reconcile. Um, but also, you know, you hear stories of how back home in Kurdistan, everyone's like having a great time without you, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, it's not ours. And everyone's like hanging out and all the cousins are sending you pictures. And, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm just here by myself watching the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I wonder how many of those like wonderful relationships I didn't get to deepen um, because I wasn't close to those people that I loved. Wow. Because yeah, as you're growing up in Europe or in America, that's one thing that's really common. You always hear about how great it is back home. And when you go visit, it really, in a lot of ways, is really great because you're the guest and you get the mm. best treatment and you get taken to all the beautiful places and all mm. the great restaurants but that really, despite, you know, living in the diaspora gives us many, many opportunities. That really is 
one of the things that really um it it's kind of it's kind of hard to swallow that you are missing out on a lot Absolutely. however Good. yes however uh like i said being in the diaspora gives us many opportunities and to that end i would like to ask how did you get into the work that you do was there and was there from the beginning a specific aim you had with the work of fact checking um i think all the work that i've ever done has basically been to try and empower people really yes it starts from a point of um people feel powerlessness in their day-to-day life um and i've been trying throughout my 10-year career now <laughs> to yeah. think about ways that we can give people the tools themselves to empower themselves um so for me fact checking is about how can we give people the information they need to be able to make choices about politics or changes that are happening in their day-to-day life without having to take someone's word for it? How can we give them the information they need to be able to trust what they're hearing and not just have someone say, this is the truth, believe me, but actually say, this is the truth, here is the evidence. And you can check it for yourself if you want to. Because I think the difference between the first and the second is that the second builds trust. Um, and I think we're, we don't have enough trust in politics and we don't have enough trust in journalism. And by being able to link things back to where their origins are, where it came from, and being able to assess it ourselves, we have a different kind of conversation that is about empowering the individual. Are you starting to see the effects of your work in your communities? I mean, it's really hard to quantify the effect of fact-checking. Um, yeah. But the truth of the matter is... I, I get, and full fact, gets emails every single day of people saying, um, so here's my some of my favorite stories, because I have to remind myself that this stuff works as well a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I have to, I have to like hold on to these stories to make it real for myself. But there was a mother who emailed in and said, thanks to your fact checks, I've decided to vaccinate my child. Right? That was wow. a big one. I, I was like, yes, this is working. This is good. Or another one. Yeah, and another one, another email came in a while back now, but it was a man who had been a teacher for a very long time and he decided to go and get a job in the city and become a banker. And he'd done that successfully for a very long time. And because he had read full facts, fact checks on how the education system was doing, he was able to see the truth uh, behind what he was being told and actually understand that it's doing a lot worse than a lot of people think it is. The education system in the UK actually needs a lot of support and help. And so he decided to go back to teaching. He just decided to stop being a banker and went back to teaching in poor districts as a result of that. And so, yes, we can talk about how fact-checking works at a a big scale. But actually, I think it's much more valuable when you think about how it's affecting individuals in their day-to-day lives. And it allows people to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise have made. And I think that's the important bit. That's, that's, wow. I actually, of course, you always see these uh, stories and you see these articles from fact-checking organizations and they are very helpful, but until you actually hear how they can affect a certain individual's life, uh, you don't really realize how needed fact-checking, fact-checkers are. Um, however, even though I'm sure there's a lot of positivity within the community towards fact-checkers and fact-checking organizations, I'm sure there's also backlash, especially mm-hmm. because it's such a political entity, mm-hmm. although not perhaps not being political inherently, but due to the information that you guys put out, it can be made political. Do you, do you get those kinds of emails as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like um, we get a lot of emails of people who are angry at the assessment um, and they think it should be another way. Um, yeah. And um, the way that Full Fact is set up is defensively. So from the very beginning, we knew that we were going to be, I mean, you can't just walk into a party and go, guys, you're all wrong, sit down, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no one is going to be liked if they do that in a party situation. And that's the equivalent. You're probably going to, yeah. And that's the equivalent of what Full Fact is doing, right? (laughs) It's like turning up last minute to an argument at like 4 a.m. at a party and it's going, everyone's wrong, I have a PhD, sit down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and that's that's fine, but actually you need to be able to show 
um, people that you are independent. So Full Fact is funded by um, lots of different funders. So there's no such thing as neutral money. So we try and keep a diverse range of funding. So all the way from Google and Facebook to thousands of individuals who give us money and then grants and founders in the middle. Um, so we, by keeping a diverse range of funding, we ensure our independence. There yeah. are there are limits on how much political activity anybody in Fullback can do. So I'm not actually allowed to have opinions on matters of public policy. I have to be publicly. very careful. Yeah, I have to be very careful about what I say publicly. Mm. Um, and I'm not allowed to do any campaigning either. I'm not allowed to be actively campaigning for any political party. Um, and we also have a cross-party board of trustees. So that means that the trustees that look after full fact are from every political persuasion. Um, and that ensures some of our neutrality and independence. And so when people get angry at us and say, oh, you haven't, you've only taken the leftist view of this, we go, well, actually, this board member uh, from the other side says it's totally cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then they'll come at us and they'll be like, actually, you've taken the very right view of this. We'll go, well, actually, some, <laughs> someone just said it was lefty. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you need to like look at this a bit more. And so it's just about having those things to fall back on and being able to have the evidence so that you can show people where it's come from. Um, but it's not a one-time conversation, right? It's an ongoing yeah. thing that grows and evolves over time. That's true. And you guys also do real-time fact-checking. For example, let's say there's a debate between two uh, political no uh, nominees. Mm. Would you be yeah. posting real-time? Uh, yes, mm -hmm. we do, yeah. it's We call it live fact-checking. And it's the most stressful live thing you can ever do. <laughs> um <laughs> It's so stressful. I can't I begin Yeah. So because you can't, you can't be wrong. <laughs> That's the difficulty. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how do you actually get the facts right? Do you, there obviously has to be a lot of preparation beforehand. Yeah. And that's the key. Preparation is the key. Um, it's not that we like um, have hired these mad geniuses. I mean, they, mostly <laughs> they are geniuses, but um, it's also the fact that during an election campaign, during a referendum, the candidates will have already picked their messages early on and they'll already have probably picked their facts early on. And so we've probably fact-checked it already. Um, okay. and, and also the fact that um, all of our fact-checkers have been doing this for 10 years now, it means that they have a very good understanding of their specialties. So if you make any kind of claim on the economy, then one of our fact-checkers is like, I know the economy, I know where to get that data. And if they're very sure of it, they can get it in a matter of seconds or minutes. Um, and so all of this is wrapped up in the big red button. And that is when somebody thinks that something is not 100% correct, we don't put it out. So okay. everybody has the ability to say, no, we're not going to put this out right now because we're not 100% sure. We're not 100% sure. And if you do that, you would lose credibility. Absolutely. And it's wow. really important not to lose that credibility and trust that we've gained over 10 years. Of but course. also, the thing that I get to work on is how does technology help us change the way that we work? So how does technology change the way that we, you work? So in the live fact-checking situation that I described, um, mm -hmm. this is how it would have happened a few years ago. Um, we would all be sitting around a TV at a news studio um, and we'd get a live feed of what the candidates were saying. And then we're all listening to what they say. Somebody would write what they say in a Google Doc um, and then somebody else would see if we already had a fact check on it. And then somebody else would do the tweeting and the checking and it would all kind of happen bit by bit all around this big round, round table. I imagine that's a slow process. It is, but with practice, Relatively speaking. with practice, you can get it to like a few minutes for each check. Okay. Um, because we have had a lot of practice in the UK recently. <laughs> We've had a lot of elections and referendums. Um, and I feel like I've had the career of a like 60 year old white man. <laughs> um, I think I can retire now. <laughs> but, um, Please don't. <laughs> but what technology can help us do now is um, there are some tools that me and my team have built which actually 
it gets the subtitles in in real time. So it transcribes the audio and puts it into text for us automatically. So now I don't need to have two people working on writing down what they say. Those two people can now work on fact-checking, right? And then from the transcription, we've built algorithms that basically look at every single sentence that comes in and matches it to something that we have checked before. So now within seconds, we can say, here is the sentence that just came out of their mouth. And here it is matched to something that you've already checked before. And here is the link. Um, And that's really exciting because it cuts down the time it takes to respond. That is really exciting. And I understand that um, your focus has primarily been on the UK because that's where you work and mm-hmm. that's where you fact check. But I also want to move on a little further, uh, further east to Kurdistan and perhaps a wider uh, to a wider scope of the Middle East in general. Um, from your position of working in fact checking, do you think that mm-hmm. Kurdish news and politics should have dedicated fact checkers? I would really love for there to be dedicated fact checkers in Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think we have to talk about the massive elephant in the room, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is that there is really no freedom of press, really, in in Kurdistan. Um, I think that there have been some decent attempts at trying to break out, but actually in terms of independent media, we have very few successful examples of that. Can you name any? I would have said that NRT in the first couple of years, but not anymore, definitely. Um, yeah, there, there really is, aren't any examples. There aren't any strong examples. There are a few good examples, like here, uh, the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast mm. and newsletter. We try to uh, be uh, you know, the unbiased source of major headlines from Kurdistan. And there are some other um, websites that do somewhat of a similar job. But generally speaking, no, there really aren't any uh, independent or free press. Yeah, and I'm I'm also talking about like press at scale, right? Yeah. So to be able to have um, TV stations or national newspapers, for example, where not only is it a voice for those stories, but it's a critical voice of the government, of parliament, yeah. of things yeah. that happen. Because fact-checking is most of the time critical. Um, And I think that when there isn't protection for journalists put in in place, it makes it much harder to think about what fact-checking might look like in in, in Kurdistan. In Kurdistan, yeah. For example, I know um, people who run a fact-checking outfit in Iran called Faktnama. In Iran? Yes, believe it or not. Um, That is very surprising. It is surprising, isn't it? It's very surprising. (laughs) So it doesn't, it means that it's not impossible to do in Kurdistan, but I do think that the team, could they be based in Kurdistan? Probably not. Because that was going to be my next question. Are they, the people in Iran, Faktnamo, was it called? Yeah. Are they based in Iran? No, they're not. Yeah, exactly. So, but even despite that, there, it is possible to have fact checkers for Kurdistan if they're based abroad. Absolutely. Well, this brings me on to the second complication, um, which is where is the data? Where is the accountable like source that you can point to, which says this is how much money this government spent on this thing and this was the outcome? Mm. Where is the data that says this is how many children were vaccinated this year and this is how you can tell? Where is the accreditation or the... Um, What's the word? The Because um... you can't fact check if there are no facts. Yeah, kind you know? of. And it's not just yeah. about facts. It's also about verified facts, right? Yeah. Um, you need to have an independent body in pretty much every institution, in every like, walk of life, um, to be able to check the standards and the quality of the stuff that's coming out. Because at the moment, what I feel is happening a lot in Kurdistan is that people are marking their own homework, right? They're marking saying, their own homework. yeah, they're saying this is how much we've spent mm. and this is the outcome. Take our word for it. It's probably yeah. it happened that way. And there's no way of checking if that's true or not. There's no that's way of 
There's no way of actually sensibly saying, well, I can see the numbers of the outcomes and this doesn't match up with what you're saying. So something went wrong here, which is what fact checking does. But if fact checking doesn't have the other side of that equation, then it's not fact checking. It's just getting angry at people. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we need that. Maybe we need to let out some anger. Yeah, and maybe maybe the anger leads to having the data, you know, and that's fine. (laughs) Although, I mean, historically speaking, getting angry at the people in charge in Kurdistan... Not great. Not great. (laughs) You don't get... You definitely don't get facts out of it. Yeah, which leads me back to, like, where are the protections for critical voices? Yeah, because any... Like, you can think back to any number of years. Anytime there was a journalist who was actually critical of the people in charge, especially if, if it was someone like way up, mm. they were either harmed, they were, uh, they had gone missing, they were Absolutely. killed, or yeah. they just fled the country. Yeah, and I think that's terrifying. And that is not the mark of a sophisticated uh, civilization, frankly. Yeah. If you're killing your journalists or they're disappearing, that's a pretty but- terrifying state of affairs. Absolutely. But there are some other places in the Middle East where fact-checking is possible. Yeah, um, and I'm seeing more and more of them. But actually, so there's a, there's an international fact-checking network, the IFCN. Um, and it has grown in the past few years from having about 100 fact-checkers to 200 fact-checkers, which is great. But the place which I look on the global map and the Middle East only has like two or three whereas every other part of the world has grown in the number of fact-checkers that it has, apart from the Middle East. Um, There are only two that I can name off the top of my head. That's a good question. I don't really know why that is. Um, I imagine because there's just been a lot of other things happening in the Middle East that have made it kind of hard to to do any fact-checking or start a news organization that would be my number one guess um but i do think also that how much money is made available um to these organizations to get started or how difficult is it to get started because anything that is successful is seen as critical and then somehow gotten rid of there isn't that kind of in order to succeed there seems to at least um some level of getting into bed with government or getting into bed with powerful people who then maybe corrupt the mission of what you're trying to do. Um, So I think that actually just growing an initiative is particularly hard if you're trying to do it with money in those, in those countries. Yeah. So the funding isn't there. The facts aren't there and maybe the freedom isn't there. Yeah. And maybe the trust isn't there either. The trust isn't there because Again, I'm sure you were familiar with this phenomenon as well, but whenever in Kurdistan there's any type of information being given out, people are critical about it, but the the level of being critical is so high that there's no trust left. You know, Absolutely. Whatever comes out, uh, the people would be like, who are you? Who do you work for? Even if the fact is factual. And that's an ironic uh, way of putting it. Fact is factual. But, you know, they ask, who are you and who do you work for? And you know what? Those are the right questions to be asking. Yeah, it is. But it's gotten to the point where people, and rightfully so, they're paranoid. Mm -hmm. They're paranoid about every um, source that comes their way. And But But do you you blame them? I don't blame them at all, to be honest. I think that's the only sensible response to everything that has happened. It's but really I, human nature. Absolutely. If somebody has lied to you consistently or you feel that you have been misled consistently, yeah. then there are only so many times that you will believe the things that you're being told. But that's why at the very beginning, I said there's a difference between being told something and being shown something. Mm. Being shown that this is the correct information and actually here's who I am, here's how I'm funded and here is the data and here's how we collected it and you can test it out yourself. Is yeah. a different conversation to here is the answer. Is there a pathway towards that? Is there a pathway even when things seem so desolate as they are in Kurdistan? I mean, absolutely. It starts with just one person making that change. And, and you build uh, trust over time. Of course. But are there those people right now working towards that in Kurdistan? 
if what? you know anything. Well, I think you guys are one really great example. Um, oh, we try, but... I mean, but seriously, like, everything that comes out is sourced. Um, there's an open discussion. Like, I'm sure that you're open to criticism, and you would take it on the chin and have a discussion about it. Um, of course. So, even if there isn't big uh, organizations that do fact-checking, even if the funding isn't there, we can still see some level of fact-checking in the Middle East, and that's through the internet. You know, people all have smartphones they can take pictures they can take videos they can pull up information from a few years ago and mm. somehow uh disprove something that was said is that in your view changing the way middle eastern politics and middle eastern news information is being given out and is being uh, practiced yeah i mean i think absolutely um i think the fact that people have access to information beyond just what they're told or what they hear um, and have the ability now to check is wonderful and hopefully changing things. But I have to also acknowledge that there is very little information available in Arabic or in Kurdish online. Mm. Um, and actually, if you look at the Wikipedias, for example, they're still very, very small um, in comparison. And if you look at the news outlets, they're still very small in comparison. Um, and so is that data being generated fast enough for people to be able to check things. I don't think so, but at least people now have the ability to query things and have that power that they previously didn't have. Okay. So in summation, start great, but we but can it's getting be there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, wow. uh, and just earlier you were telling me about Facebook and their new, um, I guess it's called apparatus. Mm -hmm. They, encourage fact checkers to use their platform to fact check information how does that work yeah facebook launched something called the third party fact checking project um yeah. and it's working with a handful of fact checkers around the world um and full fact is one of them um, but at the moment they're not working with any middle eastern ones and this is where i think there's a big opportunity so the partnership works this way if you as a person on facebook sees a post that you think is false you can say, I think this is false in the little button. Um, and then that adds that post to a queue for fact checkers to take a look at. If there is a partner in that country, um, us in the UK, for example, we would get a list of all of these posts and then we would check them individually. And if we check it and find out it's false, we mark it as false. And then it's marked as false for literally everybody who has ever shared it. Yeah. And if anybody ever goes to share it again, they'll get a little notification that says, are you sure you want to share this? Because full fact checked it and it's false. And most people decide not to share it at that point, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I'm hopeful about the future of fact checking and the future of information online is because these product changes are happening. But at the moment, there aren't any fact checkers in the, in the Middle East to start having these conversations with the Facebooks and the Googles and the Microsofts. Yeah. And I think that's what's missing. Obviously, Facebook giving the responsibility to third-party fact-checkers adds a lot of cred credibility to this whole process. But with the way Facebook have acted in the past few years and what happened with, uh, what was it called? The uh, Cambridge Analytica, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the data Do you scam. Think, yeah, the data scam. Uh, scam. Do you think people would be, you know, trusting Facebook again after that? Perhaps this is not so much your focus uh, here, but, you know, while I have you here. No, I, I think it's a good question. And I think that Facebook has lots of different measures of trust, probably, in different countries. Yes. Um, and I think that's important because people's experience of Facebook isn't the same in every country. Yeah. Um, lots of people have different relationships with it. Um when people see a notification, they see it as full fact has checked this. So actually, we think of it as their relationship with us. But obviously, mm -hmm. it's happening on the Facebook platform. Yeah. Um, so I think that generally, tech companies beyond Facebook need to think about what trust looks like in the modern day. <laughs> it's not enough to just have the platform. You have to be showing at every single turn how you are trustworthy, why you are trustworthy. This is why all of the campaigns on TV right now from Apple and Google and Facebook are all about 
we protect your security, we protect your data, because they're trying to build trust with their audience. And I think that more and more of that needs to happen, but there has to be scrutiny to make sure that actually they're doing the right things. And at this moment in time, I don't believe politicians anywhere in the world are well equipped to have a conversation about what good and trustworthy tech looks like in the modern day. And that's really dangerous. Yeah, because they themselves aren't that trustworthy, at least in our eyes. Yeah, but I would say that most politicians don't even have the technical know-how to start having a conversation about what does it mean to be using machine learning or algorithms or when we make these kind of algorithmic choices, how is that choice actually being made? What kind of data went to that? What does it mean if we over-regulate? Because let's say we have an algorithm that we build that actually is about automatically identifying things that are false and just getting rid of them on the internet or automatically identifying things that are um, uh, like are, are causing harm to other people or using derogatory terms and we automatically get rid of them. What you've done there is potentially get rid of freedom of speech because you have stopped some people being able to say anything if they use a word that the algorithm decides it doesn't like. Or sometimes people have put wrong things online, not because they are trying to mislead other people, but just because they got it wrong. They made a mistake. And you don't want to mix up those two things and make choices in algorithms that literally affect every person in the world, but actually shuts out half of the population out of their rights. But how can we find the difference between those two? Like in the long term and in the work of fact checking, it's, you know, the nuance gets lost quite a bit. How can we make sure that nuance isn't lost? I think that the, that's the very important question is how do we define these things? What is bias? What is wrong information? And unfortunately right now, a lot of these things are clumped together as one concept when actually it's lots of little concepts that need to be broken down. Um, and we need to have a conversation about what does racist, uh, what does actually racist conversations online look like? Because I yeah. promise you, it's not the same in every country. Of course. Um, and what does, um, for example, sexist language look like? Um, because some of the terms that are used, for example, um, by some communities are people reclaiming words that are derogatory. Um, And if an algorithm is picking out just that word, they're not understanding the context in which that word is is used. And that potentially over over regulates and gets rid of people's ability to say stuff. So I think the answer is that we just need a lot more honest and open conversations and we need open conversations about it. Um, That's the important thing, because these decisions can't be made in the terms and conditions of tech companies that are hold to account by no one right now. They literally get to decide where the line is and they don't need yeah. to tell anyone about it. So I think that yeah, a lot of the work that we do is about bringing that into the open. And that was really one of the one of the main criticisms that people had for the United States government when they were dealing with Facebook. They were saying that essentially Facebook had to regulate what was right and what was wrong or rather what is allowed and what is not allowed. Mm. And perhaps there are more, there are people who are better at that job than Facebook, who essentially wants to make money. That's, you know, they're, they're, they're a company, they're trying to make money. Perhaps there are people who are more equipped to handle that task that the government should be approaching for that, uh, for that work. But yeah, um, so if you're a young entrepreneur in the Middle East and you care about what is truth and what is not truth, and you actually want to, bring about some positive change to the world, there's a niche. You can start a, f- a fact-checking organization. You heard it here first, guys. Um, Mivan, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for answering all the questions of a layman about uh, fact-checking. <laughs> and thank you for dedicating your time to us and all the work that you do. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> my pleasure to have you on.
Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed the interview as well. If you'd like to keep up with us, you can go to our Instagram, whlw-curtisan, and from there you can find links to the newsletter, as well as our Patreon if you'd like to support us on there. Thank you once again for listening. I have been your host. I am Gilles Shwani, and I hope you all have a great week. <laughs>